Today's sermon text is from John chapter 4, verses 27 through 42. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Part of what I hope you will take away from the message in our worship today is that God works through all kinds of people, and he is delighting to work in you, and I am excited to see how he makes changes in other people's life because of your faithful witnesses. So let's pray to that end. Oh, how sweet it is to trust in Jesus. Just to take him at his word. He he speaks life into us. And we believe. And he transforms us. God, I'm so thankful for years, decades of you working in my life and transforming me from one degree of glory to another. And every year I grow so much more. I think there's more, there's more. I can go deeper. God, you are an eternal well of life-giving water. Help us all to go deeper into that living water today. Fill our hearts with that living water. Refresh our souls with that living water. And may it be so full that it comes pouring out of our hearts through our lips into this dark and dying world, a world that needs life a world desperate for life, a life that we hold here together today. We hold in our hands and we hold it in our hearts. I pray it would burst forth. Open the floodgates of our hearts that our lips may proclaim the glory of our crucified and risen King Jesus. By his authority, we pray. Amen. 
When I became a Christian about 20 years ago, I remember immediately feeling this urgency to share the gospel with others. I had to get out. There was something new in me forcing me to, to do it, compelling me, yet I also carried with me this, this feeling of complete inadequacy. I did not know my Bible well. Believe it or not, I was an extremely shy, very introverted person. I always swore I would never have a job where I have to deal with people and stand in front of them and do public speaking. God has a sense of humor. Even then, whenever I had a chance to explain the gospel to someone, I would just freeze up in fear and then stay silent. And then the rest of the day beat myself up over this missed opportunity that I had to show that I was faithful to Jesus. But I didn't completely ignore the responsibility. I knew I had to do it. It was compelling me. God told me that we were all to be witness, I, witnesses. I knew what I was supposed to be doing. The desire was in me. I just felt like such a failure all the time. It wasn't joyful at all. It was such a painful burden for my heart, but I was still determined to be faithful. So I figured maybe if I just got some training and some practice, I could figure out how to do this. So I signed up for an evangelism boot camp in Los Angeles where we would go into places like Hollywood, Santa Monica Boulevard at two in the morning, or Venice Beach, the, the boardwalk there, and we would do street evangelism and open air preaching. <sighs> I didn't really realize it at the time why I would do such a thing, but the power of the gospel just compelled me to do so. So early in my 20s, all by myself, I flew to LA before everybody had cell phones. I remember calling Molly on a payphone when I got there. And I flew all the way down there and met new friends who were so on fire for Jesus. They knew Jesus so much better than anyone I've ever met. And I shared the gospel with complete strangers. I even stood up on Venice Beach on this little milk crate as my soapbox next to this pagan fortune teller. And I proclaimed Jesus for everyone to hear. It was the scariest thing I have ever done in my life. As I look back on that experience, I'm very thankful for how God used me and how he grew me through that. But now I look back and I realize the reason it was so difficult and so joyless and I was so fearful was because my motives in it were completely wrong. I was sharing the gospel simply to win arguments, to get other people to join my side, to make myself feel like I was on the right side. I was doing it just to say I was obedient. I resolved to become a better evangelist through grit and determination, but I wasn't doing it out of an overflow of Christ's love in me for others. Many of you feel like you are too weak or too broken or ashamed or scared or maybe too young or too old for God to use you in this dying world. Others might feel like, well, I'm not that scared. I, I actually feel like I am clever enough, strong enough, smart enough, or brave enough. And God's pretty happy that he's got me on his team. 
Well, our story from John today reveals that the power to accomplish God's work is not in us at all, whether you, are, uh, whether you think you are good enough or not. But it comes from Christ. When Christ fills you with his living water and it overflows from you into a joyful, humble invitation for others to come and see Jesus. John wants us to let Christ's living water to overflow into a fruitful harvest. Let Christ's living water overflow into a fruitful harvest. That's our main idea from this continuing story of the woman at the well. And we'll, we're going to break it up into three parts. Verses 27 through 30, we see the effect of a potent seed taking root in this woman. It overtakes her heart and immediately she starts to bear fruit. Meanwhile, in verses 31 to 38, as the woman is out there casting more seeds of the gospel, Jesus is explaining to his disciples the nature of a ripe harvest. It's more urgent, more satisfying than eating the food that they are so hungry for. These fields of souls all around us are ready to be brought in for an abundant harvest. Finally, verses 39 to 42 vividly put all of these principles on display as the woman herself produces a fruitful bounty. This story is told in such a way to urge all of us into the harvest, confident that any one of you can do it by the power of Christ working in you. So let's jump into this exciting text and return to verses 27 to 30 and marvel along with the disciples, the potent seed of Christ. John writes for us, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. So this, after this emotional interaction between Jesus and this woman at the well, and Jake preached to us last week. Now the disciples show up back on the scene. During their journey from Jerusalem through Judea up into Galilee, they have stopped here in Samaria to grab a bite to eat. The disciples went into, into town to grab some food while Jesus kind of hung back in order to talk to this woman. And when the disciples returned, John says, they marveled. They were shocked, stunned that Jesus was talking with her. They marveled because that beautiful, inspiring conversation he had with her would have been quite scandalous in that culture. Jake hinted at it last week as well. The rabbinic tradition taught that a holy man talking to a woman at best was a waste of time. At worst, a holy man talking to a woman could lead him to hell. Some people even taught that, teaching, that a, a holy man teaching his daughters the Torah was almost as bad as leading them into prostitution. Just zero value for women. And more than that, Jesus was talking to a Samaritan woman. Jews thought that getting too close to Samaritans would make you ritually unclean. They were just a people who, whose whole lives were lived in ritual uncleanness. 
They weren't allowed to go into Jerusalem because of their impurity. So they tried to make their own temple right here on the mountain where they could at least somehow have access to God. But then the Jews came along and destroyed that because they were so concerned from their own history and knowing God's law a little bit that true worship only can happen in Jerusalem at the temple. Too many times in their history, people would build alternate worship sites and it would lead them into idolatry and ultimately destruction. So now the Samaritans are stuck in impurity, no way to find cleansing. And so Jesus comes and talks to this woman, offering her his cleansing water. And the disciples wanted to ask the woman, what do you... What do you think you're after talking to him? And then they want to ask Jesus, why are you talking to her? But they can't say anything. They are just struck dumb at the sight of what is happening before them. And before they can say anything, the woman just gets up and heads off into town, leaves her water jar behind, completely forgetting about it. She's so enraptured by her conversation with Jesus. She's so full of his life-giving water that she has forgotten about her physical thirst. She forgot about herself. She runs into town in verse 29 and just boasts in Christ. Jesus planted the gospel seed in her heart and immediately pouring his living water on it, it begins to give life in her and bear fruit towards others. And she starts spreading more seeds. Notice her testimony, come, See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Her witness is simply an invitation. Come and see. Come and see this guy. Come and see Jesus. Investigate for yourself. There's nothing special about this woman that they should believe her. We already know that they don't value a woman's testimony at all. Her testimony would have been null, void in court, not valid. But more specifically... We know that she was a sinful woman. She had five husbands, and the guy she was living with now is not her husband. So she's been with at least six different guys. Surely everyone in town is aware of this reputation. The city is not a big city, an influential city in the region. So at most, there's a couple thousand people that live in this city. And if she's been with six guys around there, they know her. They know what she's done. She's definitely not someone they should be listening to. But there's something peculiar about her testimony. She's not defending herself. She's not calling for pity. Oh, just be kind, be patient with me. I, I, I've really, I've reformed, I'm gonna do better. She's just completely open about her failures. She's not worried that everyone else is looking down on her. Well, I'm trying to seek Jesus, but everyone else is so self-righteous around me. Everyone knows her faults, and so does Jesus. But what he has done for her has so overtaken her soul. You can just hear it in her voice. All she can talk about is him. Something's different. And if they want to know what's going on, they need to go talk to him. If they want to understand what's happening, they need to go see him. Her focus is so completely on Jesus. He fills her heart and now he's pouring out of her affections. The living water planted so deep, it's a well, a life spring 
towards others that now they can't even deny her testimony, no matter how easy it would be to do so. Clearly, something has happened to this woman and it's causing quite a stir in town. So much so that verse 30 says they all left town to go see Jesus. They are on the move now to go investigate for themselves. That seed that Jesus planted is already bearing fruit, scattering more seed for a harvest. People who felt rejected by God, even if they were rightly rejected, are being gathered in as his own through the testimony of this ordinary, weak and broken woman. This gospel seed is powerful and is making easy work in a very ripe harvest. It wasn't the woman's skill, her purity, her own strength or eloquence that made these people want to respond to her message. It was the living water of Christ in her, overflowing a joy-filled heart. This is the lesson to the disciples that Jesus gives them in verses 31 to 38. The Samaritans are a living example of a ripe harvest. So let's read Jesus' explanation here in verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him some food? Something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. See, the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. So when the woman finally leaves, the disciples turn their attention to what they believe is a more urgent matter. Who cares whatever that Samaritan woman wanted to talk about? Probably not important. They need some food. They need to eat. They've had a long journey. They still have a long journey ahead of them. They're not going to make it until they fill their tummies. And so they urge Jesus to eat. This is the pressing issue for them. If we are careful to think in our own lives, whenever something urgent arises in our hearts, if, if we slow down and think about it, we realize that what seems most urgent is really just a distraction for a deeper issue. Jesus explains to them how he has food to eat that they don't even know about, which is confusing to them in verse 33. They went to get food. When they returned, Jesus already has some food. Who gave him food? Clearly, we know that Jesus isn't really talking about food to put in his stomach. But John, again, is highlighting the level of confusion that everybody has about who Jesus is and what he's here for. Misunderstanding is kind of a rhetorical device he uses to tell the story. Remember, Nic not Nicodemus, that other guy, Nathaniel. Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Or Jesus is in the temple confronting the priests and they're like, what are you talking about rebuild this temple in three days? It took us 46 years to make it. Now Nicodemus says, 
Jesus tells him he must be born again. Oh, I'm supposed to climb into my mother's womb and be born a second time? Or even the woman at the well. He says, I have living water for you. And she goes, you don't even have a jar. How are you going to give me some living water? Not realizing that she was the vessel he was going to pour it into. Nobody understands what Jesus is doing, who he is. But in the next chapter, it's so exciting. We're going to get to parts where Jesus just blows the lid off of all of this, showing who he is, the communion he has with God, his divine nature. But right now, they don't realize that the very source of life and sustenance standing right in front of them. The woman thought she needed water to drink. And Jesus says, I'm going to pour my life giving water right into your soul. You don't need a jar for that. The disciples thought they needed food to fill their stomachs. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. There's a harvest out there. Go eat to your heart's content. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. Jesus is the word of Yahweh. He doesn't need bread. He is the bread. He doesn't need his disciples to feed him. He came to feed the world. Not by filling their stomachs, but by filling their souls. Our world is hungry for that kind of bread, for that life. They're desperate for it. Our world doesn't need more education. Our world doesn't just need a meal. They need purpose and joy to well up inside of them to become the image bearers, the dominion takers, the cultivators they were made to be. That's what Jesus came to do. And that's exactly the harvest that's right in front of the disciples, ready to be reaped. He says in verses 38 to 35 to 38 to, that you are, are, if you're hungry, just go out into the fields and eat. The field is abundant, ready to be enjoyed. He appeals to their, their knowledge of farming where a, labor, a group of laborers come in, they till up the soil, they dig it up, they plant the seeds, and then they wait for rain to germinate it. Then four months later, another group of laborers comes in and harvests what someone else planted. They gather it in and take it into the storehouses. The harvest that Jesus is talking about is quite similar, but also very different. On the one hand, God has already done most of the work. He sent Moses to write the law. He sent the prophets, the writings to plow up and soften the rocky soil of people's hearts. God's spirit has gone through the world to water that soil and germinate seeds. God has shown his son to spread humanity throughout the earth. And now Jesus' arrival signifies the harvest is ripe and ready and the disciples are called to be the laborers sent into the harvest. But at this moment, they are so distracted by their prejudices, their hateful, prideful attitudes towards others. They're so distracted by fulfilling their own hunger, satisfying their own needs. They can't see the work to be done all around them. Surprisingly, there is one who understood, a Samaritan woman. And she's out there doing the work right as we speak. 
Verse 36 says, she's receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. This farming work is also quite a bit different than what they would expect, as evidenced by this woman. These seeds don't need months to mature to fruit-bearing. As with the woman at the well, they bear some fruit immediately. If you have received the gospel and germinated by Christ's living water, it will well up into you immediately and, and be seen in some way by others. And then your fruit will become new seed for other people. You might not be skilled at defending your faith. You might not have a rich, theological, deep knowledge of Christ yet. You may not be eloquent in your speaking. You may be like me 20 years ago saying, I'm never going to stand in front of people and speak. Your past may be filled with much sin and brokenness. But it's the new life in you that overflows your heart towards others that does the work. The power of the gospel seed creates the ripe harvest where the sower and the reaper get to rejoice together. It's rejoicing work. It's happy work. Telling others about Jesus isn't burdensome work as it was for me early on. It becomes a joy because I no longer am focused on myself or on my weaknesses and failures as much. I'm just free to let Jesus flow from my lips and watch him work joy into other people's hearts. This work is not burdensome. It is easy labor. He's already done the hard part. Verse 38, he says, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored. You have entered into their labor. Generations have gone before us to lay a foundation a previous church worked hard to give us this building. Many of you have been faithful to keep working. We stand on the shoulders of giants and now our labor is easy with hearts full of Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's still a yoke, it's still a burden, but it's easy. We go into the harvest with hearts filled with Christ and let it overflow toward others. And then Christ multiplies it exponentially. Look at verses 39 to 42. We return to the people of Samaria who display the results of this woman's faithful work, a fruitful bounty. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. So at first, a bunch of people responded to her own testimony. They followed Jesus. They sought Jesus because of her, because she had obviously been changed in some way by this man she claimed to be the Messiah. They wanted to go see for themselves. 
The one in whom Jesus planted this seed had now turned to planting seeds herself. This most unlikely, unqualified, unskilled, unrighteous person became full of living water and turned that city upside down. Many Samaritans went to Jesus because of her. And then Jesus stayed two more days with them, teaching, answering questions. Remember that these are people the Jews would not associate with because they had compromised too much on God's word. But Jesus stayed in their homes. He ate food with them. He taught them God's truth. He led them to faithfulness. He led them away from their compromise to faithfulness to God. So while he was providing them bread from heaven, they provided him food for his stomach. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus had the priority right. God provided food for his stomach through these people that he was pouring heavenly bread into their hearts. So even more believed. No longer because of the woman's testimony, but because they had their own encounter with Jesus. They said, we now know this is the savior of the world. Such an incredible statement. Just a couple of days prior, when Jesus was talking with the woman at the well, he said to her, salvation is of the Jews. Not for the Jews, but from the Jews. The disciples had it all mixed up. They thought the Messiah would come for them and not those, those dirty Samaritans. But this interaction with the Samaritans shows them the Savior may be from the Jews, but he is for the whole world. Jew, Samaritan, Gentile, young, old, rich, poor, healthy, sick, whatever sinner you may be, he has come for people just like you. He intends to take his living water to the ends of the earth. Even the way John is structuring his story over the last couple of chapters is leading us down that path. He started his public ministry in Jerusalem at the temple and then with Nicodemus. And then he moved out to the Judean countryside and ministered there for a while. He's making his way up to Samaria. And then in the next section next week, he'll be at the northern reaches of the kingdom of Israel. And he's going to heal a royal official. Someone nobody ever would have thought would receive blessing from the Messiah. It's the same pattern he expects his disciples to follow in Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. It's the pattern of Christ's mission to the whole world. And he makes a stop in Samaria to show that the gospel's not just for the Jews. And he uses this one unlikely woman to show that his seed will multiply beyond her, inviting even more to come and see. They invite people into their homes until the whole city was turned upside down. Likewise, we too are called into our city to go to the whole world to be witnesses of the Savior to the end of the earth. And it's done through ordinary, weak, broken people just like you and me, filled to overflowing with the life-giving water of Christ into the fruitful harvest around us.
Your testimony is not about you. It's about Christ alive in you. Over 15 years now after my evangelism boot camp, I care much less about my fears. I can talk about Jesus even with complete strangers. It's not because I just kept on working hard. It's because I realized that I needed to love Jesus more. Like the woman at the well, I needed to be filled more with the living water of Christ and so that I care much less about my fleshly needs and weaknesses. I'm satisfied in Christ. And now my heart just marvels at his love, his abundant love toward me, that he would put me in front of others to proclaim his love. Who would have thought that could happen? It's my joy to share that love with you. So how can you be more fruitful in your witness? This story of Jesus visiting the Samaritans gives us the keys to fruitful evangelism, essential elements of fruitful evangelism. You don't need evangelism training or some gospel tracts to carry in your pocket or to memorize a clever presentation of a Roman's road or four spiritual laws. You need a heart full of Christ. Your message must be centered on, empowered by, aimed at Christ. The Samaritan woman didn't say, I worked really hard on this message. I hope you guys like it. Come and, come and hear it. You know, I've really reformed my life and I think you might want to listen to me now. She said, see Jesus. Come and see Jesus. Come and see the man whose love is springing up in my heart, a well of life-giving water. Your testimony is not about you, but about what Christ did for you. It's about falling in love with him as you more, learn more about his love for you as he died on the cross to pay for your sins. He rose from the dead to give you eternal life. If you want to become more courageous in your evangelism, you need to fall more and more in love with Jesus. You need to surrender more and more to King to the king, you need to fill your heart more with his truth and his promises. Then with your heart filled with Christ, out of the abundance of that heart, your mouth will speak of him. And you'll be less concerned about yourself. Humility is also an essential element of evangelism. Humility isn't dwelling on what a terrible person you are. Humility isn't even just forgetting who you are. That's kind of impossible. Your memories stick with you. Humility is accepting the cracks, the weaknesses, the past failures as part of your story so that Christ can shine through them. Remember that woman running into town, declaring, Jesus knows everything about me. They knew it too. There's no point in trying to hide it, cover it up, pretend it wasn't there. But it provided a great backdrop for the love of Christ to pour out of her. The Apostle Paul also was happy to boast in his weakness, his stammering, his frail appearance, because it allowed the Corinthians to see the power of Christ more clearly. 
in humility, embrace your weakness and let the living water of Christ flow through them towards others. Finally, faithful evangelism is work. It requires you to take a risk, to go somewhere, to do something, to open your mouth and say something. Jesus took the uncomfortable road through Samaria to go to a people that nobody liked, to share life-giving water with a woman nobody cared about. And then, in her own witness, she had to go back into town where everybody knew her garbage and risk looking like a fool going, hey guys, I found the Messiah. <laughs> really? Okay. Sure you did. Even the Samaritans, when they finally understood, they opened their homes up to their enemies. They brought the Jews into their home and brought the neighbors in. What a risk. What, a vulnerab what vulnerability to bring people in to see your own mess and to maybe make more of a mess so that they can hear about Jesus. You must work too. You need to plan margin into your schedule, flexibility, so you can have the opportunity to step away from your own mission and be available for divine encounters to trust God, to provide for your needs in ways you didn't plan. Like Jesus was fed the next two days by the Samaritans he came to save. You must vulnerably open your home for others to see how Christ loves you in your mess. Don't clean up your house for people to come over. Just let them in to show that Christ loves you there. You must be people who go to others who seem impossible, unworthy, or those who could even point out your failures. But it's your joy to do so because this is your satisfying soul food. This is the living water poured into your heart and flowing out toward others. When you get caught up in this mission of Christ pouring himself into you and you to others, suddenly that gluttonous urge for food no longer seems compelling. That illicit temptation for pornography becomes less alluring. That desire to prove your intellect or show off your own determination becomes so shallow. The only food that satisfies is Christ known in you, in your humble life he has given you. So embrace your weakness. Fill your heart with more of Christ and let his living water overflow into a fruitful harvest. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are using ordinary people like us. I know these brothers and sisters and their fears and their weaknesses, their struggles, and I am glad to say that I see you shining your light, pouring out your love in and through them. And I pray, as you did for the Samaritan woman, you would use us to turn our city upside down. Our city is full of darkness, full of death, full of despair, People hungering all over the place, grasping for something to give them life. And the only thing that will satisfy is Christ. Would you help us run into that harvest, into the easy labor, and gather them in for the glory of Christ and for our joy in him. Amen.